we are this morning finally at verse 20 of Matthew chapter 16. We will make it all the way through verse 23 this morning. Uh, that uh, verse 23 has been kind of an elusive goal for the last few weeks. Um, we started out in this uh, section here with uh, Jesus asking the question, who people say that he is. And then he asked the disciples who they thought that he was. And uh, in Peter's response, that statement of faith, Jesus then talks about the foundation of the church and the perseverance of the church against the power of hell and how the church would function in the repentance of those who come to Christ. That's what we looked at last week. And last week, I left you with just a glimpse there in verse 20 of what we're going to be talking about this morning, uh, where Jesus tells the disciples not to tell anybody who he was. After he's just gone through this exercise, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Don't tell anybody who I am. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense with us uh, when we think about how important it is to share Jesus with people, Right? Uh, so when we look at the rest of the story, uh, starting in verse 21 and going through verse 23, then it begins to make sense. So I'm going to ask you all to stand, and I'm actually going to read from verse 20 through verse 23 this morning. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. Father, again we ask that you would help us to understand your word Help us to see uh, the meaning of the text, not that it is hidden, but, Father, that we need the help of the Holy Spirit to understand how this applies to us today. So, Father, help us to be good students in your name. Amen. Please have a seat. So, one of the really nice things that we have with, uh, number one, how many of y'all read ancient Greek? Okay. So, so we have English translations of the Bible. That's a, that's a good thing because we're all native English speakers and we read in English, right? Uh, if we didn't speak English, if we didn't read English, then I would propose that you'd probably have a translation in whatever native language that you would read. I would recommend that, as a matter of fact. Um, but some of the Bibles that we have... Uh, actually, all of the English Bibles that we have include some tools to help us study, right? Now, raise your hand if your Bible has chapter and verse numbers. Okay, you know those were not part of the text. Matthew did not put in here chapter and verse numbers. That was actually done by a priest sometime in the, uh, I believe the time frame was the 13 or 1400s before chapter and verse numbers got added before somebody realized it would be a whole lot easier for us to tell people where to look in the Bible if they had addresses to get to. Um, 
some of the Bibles that we have are study Bibles. Study Bibles have notes, they have commentary notes in them, they have cross-references in them. And, and in between a, a non-study Bible and a study Bible, most uh, just English translation reading Bibles have uh, taken the text and the editors, which I know that kind of bothers us, the idea that somebody had to edit a Bible when they printed it, but you know somebody had to read to make sure that the typesetter didn't cross letters, right? To make sure there's no typos. So what the editors would do is, is sometimes they would take and break the chapters into smaller sections. Not just paragraphs, but smaller sections that are one coherent thought or one coherent idea. For example, in, in my edition of the Bible up here, from verses 13 to 20 are all one section. It's one story. One piece of the main story. And then verses 21 through 23 are another section. There's, there's a particular word, of course, because us theological types like making up Greek words. There's a, a Greek word that is pericope. Pericope, okay? Uh, it's spelled uh, pericope, P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E that means a passage that is suitable for reading aloud. So when I read a section to you in Scripture, when I do my study in preparation, I normally stick with those chunks because they're easy, right? There's one idea there. It makes sense. There's a problem, though. Even though we have these things separated like this and the the editors have even been nice enough to put in mine, I don't know about yours, but they put little paragraph headings, right? So it, before we get to verse 13, mine has a paragraph heading that says, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Because from verse 13 all the way to verse 20, that's what we deal with. That's the major theme, is the identity of Christ. And then in verse 21, right before that, Jesus foretells his death and resurrection, which is what's going on when we get to verse 21, Right? Well, these are not inspired text. These are editors trying to make things easier for some of us that are a little bit slower of thought, like me. So the problem that we have is that editors have different ideas about what passages fit together to form a coherent thought. So if you look at my Bible and you look at your Bible, they might have different paragraph headings. They might be separated in different spots. All right, that's only a problem if we forget that it's man who put these in to help us study and not God who put them in as part of his inspired word. Now, the reason I'm bringing all this up is because verse 20 of chapter 16, even though it fits with the identity of Jesus, where he's, he's asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, don't tell anybody that I am the Christ. It fits into that section, but the explanation for it doesn't come until after, in verses 21 through 23. So that's one of the problems that we have if all we do is we lean on the man-made understanding that the editors put into these. Very important for you to read the story 
as a whole, as one cohesive text. All right, I'm not saying throw those study tools out because they're good, but don't lean on them like a crutch. So, following his declaration of the purpose and work of the church, and after Jesus tells the disciples to not tell anybody that he was the Christ, he makes a change in his teaching. Up until this point, Jesus has predominantly been going around the area of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, in the the northern part of what we consider to be the Israel area, Palestine. He's been going around teaching everybody, number one, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? Number two, he's been teaching everybody that what the Pharisees have to teach about following the law of God isn't really what the law of God is about. There's more to a spiritual life than just following the letter of what the Pharisees are teaching. But now, he makes a change. Now, his change, he doesn't change the message. He adds to the message. Because he starts expanding on this idea of his identity and how that fits into the sacrificial part of his mission. See, if all Jesus did was teach what he was teaching in the first part of his ministry, then all those people who look at Jesus and say, he was a really good teacher, they would be right. Now, that's not all he was. He was a really good teacher. In fact, he was the best teacher. But he was more than that. He expands on his identity to deal with part of his mission that people just couldn't wrap their heads around. The popular understanding of the Messiah. A little bit of Israel's history. So, in in the the mid-700s B.C., the northern ten kingdoms were taken into captivity, right? And then a couple hundred years later, in the mid-500s B.C., the southern two kingdoms were taken into captivity, right? The first was the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians came in and took them out and took over the southern half of the kingdoms as well, right? And then after the Babylonians, there came the Persians, And it was Cyrus who allowed the Jews to come back into the promised land, start rebuilding the temple, and and start doing all of the reconstruction that kind of tapered off a little bit. And then the Persians were defeated by the Greeks. There was a young Greek emperor. You may have heard of him. His name was Alexander. He conquered most of the known world, like all of Asia, Southeast and Southwest Asia. His reach covered most of the globe, except for the Western Hemisphere. He was very, very powerful. And he died when he was like 33 years old. So he was a young emperor when he was making all of these conquests. And when he died, his kingdom was divided into four parts. He had the the northwest, the northeast, the southeast, and the southwest. And eventually what happened is those four generals that ruled those, those parts, they, they eventually kind of teamed up, and you had the northern part and the southern part. 
And the northern part and the southern part, right in between the northern part and the southern part, was this little area called Palestine. And it became a political football. Because the southern kingdom would come in and they would take over Palestine and they would rule for a few years. And then the northern kingdom would attack and, and they would take over Palestine and they would rule for a few years. And, and they kept bouncing back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Until the Roman Empire arose. And when the Roman Empire arose, they took over all of the Greek Empire, as much as they could expand to cover, and they took over Palestine. So for quite a long time now, from at least the mid-500s B.C., Palestine has been an occupied territory. We're talking about a little more than 500 years. What were the Jews looking for in their Messiah? Can we have our land back, please? Right? Can, can we please get rid of these invaders and have a godly man rule? They were looking for the Messiah to come establish God's kingdom in the promised land, particularly in Judea, because by this point they had pretty much written off Samaria and Galilee. They were lost. Galilee was populated with all these Gentiles, and the Sumerians, well, they were half-breeds, they were unclean, and just, they did everything wrong. So all that was left of the pure people of Israel was in Judea. So they expected God's Messiah to come and stand up the kingdom of God on earth in Jerusalem, in Judea. Kick out the Romans. Cleanse the nation from the Gentile influence. Remove the oppression of the occupiers. This was a purely human kingdom that they were expecting. They were expecting a king like David, a king like Solomon. There was very little spiritual component to their belief at all. And so Jesus, in verse 21, says, From that time, after the disciples say, You are the Christ, okay? What did they mean by you are the Christ? You're the one who's going to stand up that kingdom. Jesus begins to show them, no. No, there's a spiritual component to this. There's a sacrificial component to this. The Christ must go to Jerusalem and be turned over and beaten and betrayed and punished by the religious leaders. Whoa. Wait a minute. That doesn't, that doesn't sound like what I know about what's supposed to happen. Right? That, that, doesn't, that doesn't fit with my picture of the Messiah who's supposed to come and, and take out the Romans. How are you going to do that if you're dead? Because what happens with people when they die? They die. They stay that way. <laughs> We've got to remember when we read this that we have a major benefit that the disciples did not have. We have 2,000 years of history to look back at Scripture. They were in the middle of it. 
I can look back at Jesus' life, I can look back at the entirety of the New Testament and see, well, it makes sense. Put yourself in Peter's shoes. Wait a minute. Hang on now. Put yourself in Matthew's shoes. Remember, what was Matthew's occupation before Jesus called him? He was a tax collector. He was a sympathizer with the Roman government. Right? He was unpopular. He was hated by people because he was unclean. He was cut off from the religious life of Israel because of the Romans. Everything that happened to him was because of the Romans. Put yourself in their shoes for a minute. Jesus' death doesn't make sense. They probably had the same belief as everybody else. Just because they said that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, that doesn't mean they expected this. I wouldn't expect this. Would you guys be surprised if somebody walked in and said, oh, by the way, I have to go to pick a location. We don't really have the equivalent of Jerusalem in the United States, right? I guess in Southern Baptist life it would be Nashville, Tennessee. I have to go to Nashville and be handed over to the Southern Baptist Convention and be crucified. What? That just doesn't fit. Even if they understood his deity, which at this point I don't think they did. Just because they said he was the son of the living God. Remember, in Israel's history, kings were called the sons of God. Just because they said he was the son of the living God does not mean they expected something other than death when he said, I need to go die. And if they did understand his deity... How does God die? God's eternal. That doesn't work either. You begin to understand the the conundrum that Peter is going through. So we go back to this command that Jesus gave in verse 20. Don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. Why? There's a couple of things I can think of. First... Look at Jesus' life. Every time he turns around, he tells the disciple, the disciples rather, I am here to do what? The will of my Father. I am here to do God's will. Period. Nowhere in Scripture does Jesus command the glory for himself. Even after this point, even after, the, the closest we get to it is in the garden when the mob shows up to arrest Jesus and they say, we're here for Jesus in Nazareth and he stands up and says, that's me. That's the closest we get to Jesus commanding glory for himself. When he's in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Right? Satan says, since you're the son of God, turn this, turn this rock into a loaf of bread and have yourself something to eat. You've got to be starving by now. Jesus said, No. Satan takes him to the top of the temple and says, God has angels watching over you. Just jump off and and let the world see that you're protected. Jesus said, don't be stupid. Satan takes him to the highest mountain and shows him all of creation and says, look, just bow your knee once and I'll give you all of this. 
Satan's really kind of daft. Jesus could have said, are, are you kidding me? I spoke all of this into existence. But he didn't. Instead, he said, you will worship God alone. You'll bow knee to God only. Even when Jesus was standing in front of Satan, he didn't demand the glory come to him. When he raised people from the dead, Jairus' daughter, the the Canaanite woman, whose daughter had a, a demon afflicting her, when he healed people, what did he tell them? Don't tell nobody. He cast the demon out, the the legion into the herd of pigs. And instead of making a big deal out of it, he just leaves town. He's not about his own glory. He's about showing God glory. That's reason number one. I think the second reason was a little bit more practical. Because if the disciples started saying, we found him, we found the Christ, we found the anointed one. You know what would have happened? There would have been a mob. They would have taken Jesus bodily to Jerusalem. They would have led an armed revolt against the Romans. A bunch of people probably would have been killed. And they would have tried to force Jesus to become king in Jerusalem. And I can see the look on y'all's faces. But he's Jesus. He's the Son of God. What do you mean they would try to force him? Well, remember we're talking about Peter here, right? We can see Peter's response. Jesus says that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Of course, Peter's ears stop at that killed part. The same guy who made the statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus has started this teaching that he's got to suffer and die and Peter says, Jesus, come here, we need to talk. Come here, come here. No way. That can't happen. In in fact, the the Greek words that Matthew wrote down, God be gracious. He sounds like a southern grandma. (laughs) No, Lord, there's no way that's going to happen to you. We'll protect you. There's no way. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But no, things are not going to happen the way you say they're going to happen. Scratching your head yet? You want to know how people could think that they could force Jesus to become king? Peter is. Peter just just stood toe-to-toe with the Christ, the Son of the living God even if all he thinks is that he's going to be the king of Israel. Peter just pulled him aside and said, you're wrong. 
25 years, I have worked in and with the United States Air Force. It has taken me 25 years before I'm comfortable looking at somebody who outranks me and telling them that they're wrong. And they're just people. And I think most of that is because most of them that are in positions of authority over me are younger than I am now. (laughs) And that hurts. So I don't mind telling them that they're wrong. I can't even... Could could you imagine standing toe-to-toe with the President of the United States and saying, no, that's not how things are going to work? No. I No. That doesn't make sense in my head. But here's Peter, the representative of humanity, recorded in Scripture. You see how easy it is to move to a position where we think we're the ones in charge over God? Even in the face of somebody that we have just... You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are, at the very least, the guy who's going to be the King of Jerusalem. And I'm telling you, you're wrong. Please don't have me executed once you get on the throne. How much of a stretch does it take to imagine one person telling Jesus that he's wrong turning into a mob carrying Jesus to the temple? I can see it happen. Peter knows who he is. Peter has Peter has seen the miraculous. Peter helped collect the baskets of leftovers after feeding the 5000, after feeding the 4000 that he forgot. Peter who after fishing all night, we talked about this in Sunday school, after fishing all night, gets to the shore and Jesus says, "Hey, let's go fishing." Jesus, I've been doing this all night long, we ain't, there ain't no fish in the water. Oh, come on, let's go, let's go out. And by the way, when you get out there, throw your net out the other side of the boat. The side of the boat doesn't matter to the fish. They don't care. Jesus, I'm the fisherman. You just stick to the preaching. But fine. And he almost sinks his boat. There's so many fish. Peter, who was there when Jesus cast the demon out. Peter, who was there when he raised people from the dead. Peter, who walked on the surface of the water and saw the storm stilled and the sea become like a sheet of glass. Peter knew there was something about Jesus with power. And he still went and said, No, Jesus, you're wrong. How much more do you think the mob would listen to Jesus say, No, this isn't the way? They wouldn't listen at all. Not in the least bit. This is what I love about Scripture. The heroes of the faith are not painted in a rosy picture. Peter isn't presented as all saintly and perfected and sanctified in his life. No, he's still human. He still says stupid things. He still does things that just don't make sense. God speaks to Peter from heaven. Go, eat 
the unclean food. And Peter says, nope. (laughs) Really? Argue with God. That's what we do all the time. Go. Tell your next door neighbor about Jesus. Nope. Don't like him. Go. Take that five bucks in your wallet and give it to the homeless guy. Nope. He's probably just going to buy booze with it. Go. Spend 50 bucks on toys to pack into shoeboxes. Those kids ain't going to appreciate that stuff. It's all going to wear out anyways. We do that. We argue with God. And Peter is just a picture of our humanity and all of its corruption. See, we don't like things that happen outside of our control. I'm probably going to make some enemies here. How many of y'all like surprises? Like surprise parties and and surprise presents? Huh? Y'all a bunch of liars. Humanity does not like surprise. No, we don't like surprise. We don't like things that happen outside of our... So, since y'all like surprises, wait till you come in the sanctuary next week. (laughs) No, we don't like things that are outside of our control. We don't like things that are outside of what we can handle. And we most certainly don't want a God that we can expect to hold us accountable for what He tells us to do. And so when Peter says, no way, Jesus, we're not going to let this happen. Jesus, gentle, meek, loving Jesus, just shakes his head, says, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. Just shut up and get back over there. Is that what he said? No. <laughs> no. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, Jesus is talking to Peter. Verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. Satan? There have been some who said that uh, Jesus is, is acknowledging that Peter is controlled by Satan here. That Satan has somehow taken hold of Peter and has caused him to make this statement. I'm going to argue with them. Some of you may disagree with me. Let me make a couple of things clear first. Satan is real. Okay? By the way, I I read a study this week. The word Satan that is used in Scripture is not used as a name. It's a title. His name is never given to us. It's a title. It means the deceiver, the adversary. Okay? The adversary is real. Okay? Okay? He is a creature. He has a lot of power, but he is a creature. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. He is not omnipotent. 
He is subject to the authority and power of God. Scripture makes that very, very, very clear. If you don't believe me, go read the book of Job. Satan, what are you doing? I'm just wandering around. Who causes Job to go through all of that misery? No, God does. Have you considered my servant Job? Since you're walking around, have you seen this guy? Have you seen his righteousness? Now, Satan says he's only righteous because you give him everything. So God says, fine, take everything away and see if he sins. See if he curses me. Take everything away from him. See, God instigated the incident with Job. Satan is submissive to God's power. He's powerful, but he's not all-powerful. We know from Scripture, from the book of Matthew, there are demonic forces at work in the world. Those demons are also creatures. They are not all-powerful. They are not omnipresent. They are not omniscient. They don't know everything. They can't do everything. And they don't know everything. Now, from Scripture, what role do these creatures have? They are tempters, right? Eve was tempted. James uses the word that we are tempted by Satan, right? So they're tempters. They are accusers of the brethren. We're told that in the New Testament, that that Satan will accuse us of things. They will whisper in our thoughts, condemnation for sins that we've committed. They oppress people. They inflict physical harm, as we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew. Those are things I agree with. Those are things that are hard to argue with from Scripture. But there's one thing that the forces of Satan do not ever have to do. They never have to make us act according to our sin nature. Let me say that again. Satan never has to force me to act according to my sin nature. He can tempt me to live according to my sin nature. He can can accuse me of sinning according to my sin nature, but never once, nowhere in all of Scripture, do we see that Satan takes control of a person and makes them sin. Because if that were the case, then who'd be responsible for the sin? Satan would. I wouldn't. I'd be off the hook. If I could really stand there, and I believe it was Flip Wilson who used to say, the devil made me do it, right? If I could stand before God on judgment day and say, look, the devil made me do it, then I wouldn't need Christ. But I can't do that. Peter did not need Satan to make him say, no, Jesus. Peter did not need Satan to take control of him to argue with Christ. That's something we do naturally. We do it all the time. So Peter didn't need Satan's influence to contradict Jesus. 
I'd wager he didn't even need Satan to tempt him to contradict Jesus. Because his human nature did that. The fact that I want to be in control, the fact that I want to know how things are going to work, the fact that I want God to stand up a kingdom that I can see right now, makes me say, no, Jesus, it ain't going to be that way. We set ourselves up in a place of authority against God, against Jesus. See, Peter expected Jesus to go to Jerusalem, not to be killed. He was going to be greeted by the Sanhedrin. The religious leaders were going to see who Jesus was and they were going to welcome him with open arms. Except all the stuff that he was teaching kind of shot their authority right out the tubes. He expected Jesus to be enthroned upon the mercy seat in the temple. He expected Jesus to take Herod and all of the Roman authorities and drive them out at the point of the sword. And Jesus just told him and the rest of the disciples, that's not how the playbook reads. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and that religious council, they're going to hand me over to the Gentiles and they're going to beat me and they're going to flog me and they're going to hang me on a cross. Peter just said, that didn't match my playbook. I don't think so. So Peter did what we all do. He spoke against the will of God and he sinned. When he did that, this is very important, what did Peter become to Jesus at that point? He became an adversary. And what is Satan's title? The adversary. Get behind me, foe. Get behind me, enemy. That's what Jesus said. He was speaking to the sinful inclination of man in Peter's statement. Peter is speaking lies. He's speaking counter to God's will. He is the deceiver in this. He's a tempter in this. You know, Peter is tempting Jesus. No, this isn't going to happen. We're going to make sure we keep you safe. Jesus could have said, okay. Is every bit as tempted there as he was in the wilderness. How do I know that? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Was Jesus' death a surprise? No. He knew about it. He knew it was going to happen. Did he want to do it? No. No, if he wanted to do it, we would not see him in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, Father, if there is any other way, any other way, let me, let me say it a different way, if there's any other way, can we do that instead? Jesus knew how bad this was going to be. He didn't want to die on a cross. He didn't want to have... <coughs> the sins of the world placed on his account. 
the one man in all of history who was perfectly righteous did not want to die the death of the unrighteous. And so when Peter said, no, we're not going to do it that way, Jesus could have said, okay, he was tempted. Peter was tempting him as surely as Satan was testing him in the desert. So now, think about those times when you hear or you feel God leading you to go talk to somebody or to participate in a ministry or to make a disciple, to invest in a person's life, to go someplace you don't want to go, to do something you do not want to do in your flesh, to volunteer to minister someplace that's hard. How about let's go minister in the prison? How about we go down to the Women's Resource Center and we do ministry to women who've had abortions? Not the ones who've changed their mind, but to the ones who've gone through with it. And we have to deal with that in their life. How about when you go to the soup kitchen and you minister to those people that most of society doesn't want in society? How about those times that God has told you, hey, we need a Sunday school teacher. How about you step up and teach Sunday school? How about when God has asked you to give money to a cause and you've argued with it and you say, gracious Lord, no. I can't share the gospel with that person. I'm not an evangelist. I can't minister in that way. I'm not gifted like that. I'm not a teacher. I don't have the spare money. I'd never be able to clear enough time off my calendar to give what I need to give to minister, so I just can't do that. Huh. Sounds a lot like Peter, doesn't it? So let me ask you, when we respond with things like that, Do you ever hear Jesus' rebuke? No, Jesus, I can't teach that age group. I'm no good with kids. No, Jesus, I can't go to the nursing home. I can't minister at the retirement home for veterans. I'm not equipped to do that. I don't have the concentration. I don't have the financial resources. I don't have the education. I don't pick your excuse. Peter had a really good excuse for Jesus not to go and suffer and die. Do you hear that response? Get behind me, Satan. You're a tempter and you're a deceiver and you are standing in the way of the will of God. I've heard it more times than I care to admit. Fortunately for us, 
God is bigger than our disobedience. As we looked at Peter in Sunday school today, God forgives us. He still uses us, just like he still used Peter. He restores us like he restored Peter. And for whatever reason, he has seen fit to use us to build his kingdom. So my challenge to you, as we get ready to leave this morning, is the next time you hear God say, go do this, before you answer, consider Peter. And consider whether you want to have God use you without the rebuke or with the rebuke. Since we like the path of least resistance, it would seem to me that we probably ought to go with the without.